This is Fullness of Life, discussing topics important to your life of faith and ways to grow in a life of grace. Join us each month as we inspire listeners to a deeper relationship with the Lord to live His fullness of life. Now, here's your host, Letty Medina. Welcome back to Fullness of Life on WSFI 88.5 FM Catholic Radio. This is your host, Letty Medina. This month, I have the great pleasure of welcoming a dear friend and brother in Christ, Deacon Keith Strom. He's going to share about his latest book called Ablaze, Five Essential Paradigm Shifts for Parish Renewal. This book is hot off the press because it was just published in August of this year. As the title states, it presents five important strategic shifts in how we should approach cultural transformation and parish renewal. Welcome, Deacon Keith. Thanks so much, Letty. It's a blessing and a pleasure to be here. Before we get started, I kind of wanted to share with the listeners how you and I first kind of got to know each other. And it goes back several years. And it was kind of fun because I am at St. Gilbert's in Grace Lake, and my pastor, Father John, um, happened to know Deacon Keith. And we were going through some discussions about how to renew our parish. And so he suggested that I reach out to Deacon Keith who was serving as the head of the Office for the New Evangelization at that time. Isn't that right, Keith? That's correct. Yes. And I remember, you know, when we call, when I, you know, called you and we talked, you began to share a bit about what, you know, you would recommend for different ways to look at renewal. And you kind of were outlining some of what you wrote about in this book. And I seemed to understand your language and what you were describing. And I was very excited to hear what you were saying. Do you kind of remember that conversation a little bit? I do indeed. I'm always excited when people understand what I'm saying. So yeah, for sure. And then it was funny because after that, um, Keith and I started to run into each other all the time. And what happened was I started a lay leadership program at the seminary and you, what were you teaching? You were leading something. I probably most likely was doing one of the retreats, either a beginning retreat or an ending retreat for um, the Institute for Lay Formation. Okay, so it was funny because I began to see him all over the place. And what my experience has been that when God starts pulling people into your life like that, there's a reason for it, right? And since then, we've had Keith come to St. Gilbert to lead a retreat. He's coming next March to lead our parish mission. And we work in other areas of ministry together as well. So it's just been a, a really wonderful evolution of a friendship and a working partnership as brother and sister in Christ. I agree. I think you're absolutely right when you just begin to talk about how God providentially brings people together. So this has been just fun to be a part of, but also to watch it unfold as well. Yeah, it, it really has been fun. So why don't we begin the show by uh, having you share a bit about your background? You know, I think our listeners want to know who they're they're listening to and what your background uh, is that would allow you to write a book about this kind of topic. Sure. I mean, that makes perfect sense. I was for many years actually active in the um, church, but I was in the corporate world. I started out as an assistant brand manager, and then I moved into um, executive management, and then eventually a chief operating officer of a company. And so I was doing corporate work and organizational leadership for about 15 years, all the while serving in my parish. I began working alongside a youth minister in uh, parish life when I was about 19, and then that continued through a good portion of my life. Then I started to train people, adults who worked with youth, and then I started to form catechists and then 
I connected up with an organization called the Catherine of Siena Institute, and that's run by Sherry Waddell. She wrote the book Forming Intentional Disciples, and I taught with them for about 12 years. Wow. And as time kind of moved forward, I ended up eventually leaving the corporate world in about 2008, became the director of evangelization and faith formation in my parish, Queen of the Rosary Parish here in Illinois. And that was the first time I had actually worked full time in the church. And I was there for about eight years and then moved into the office for the new evangelization as the director there for a short period of time. And then the Lord called me into sort of full time traveling ministry. I was traveling part time, but now the Lord moved me into full time traveling ministry and I work with parishes and dioceses, helping them to kind of transform their culture. So they focus on evangelization, mission, and discipleship. That's so awesome. So you have a very broad background, clearly, and a lot of knowledge, firsthand knowledge and experience in leading parish renewal. So that definitely does give you the right to write a book like this. And I know that you've kind of partnered a, a bit with Father Mallon, isn't that right? Yeah, I do a lot of work with the Divine Renovation Ministries folks particularly Father James. And I've also done a parish mission at St. Benedict Parish in Halifax. He brought me off for that and for several other events there. And then also with parishes that are connected to the Divine Renovation Network, uh, mostly doing parish missions for them as well. Okay. That's very cool. So, okay. So let's start talking about your book. Um, sure. So the, the title of the book is Ablaze, Five Essential Paradigm Shifts for Parish Renewal. And, um, you know, in the very first chapter, you kind of emphasize that the root of the problem uh, with many Catholic parishes today is the lack of discipleship. Can you kind of expand a little bit on that? I'll try. It's so fundamental. I think so often we can get caught up in the symptoms of our issues. You know, we have a lack of engagement. We have uh, passivity in our parishes. There's maybe a lack of giving, a decline in mass attendance. And a lot of times we get so focused on those, um, those issues and those are like the tips of an iceberg and we miss the underlying problem. And so we work so hard on fixing the tip of the iceberg and yet we still kind of run aground on the kind of the mass of the iceberg that's below the water that we can't see. And so passivity and, and declining mass attendance and lack of vocations and a lack of engagement in parishes really is fundamentally caused by a lack of discipleship, a, a lack of men and women who have had the opportunity to surrender their lives to the Lord Jesus and to make that relationship the center of their lives. Exactly. And that's what we typically call conversion, right? That's absolutely right. And, and there's a difference. I think so often we confuse things like engagement or activity with discipleship. So because somebody is present and they're volunteering and they're active, they must be a disciple. But discipleship is, is very intentional. There are no unintentional disciples of Jesus Christ. And so part of the definition of discipleship is that it requires an act of entrustment to Jesus, a, a, an, an act of surrender, yeah. a choosing to say yes to follow him. Yeah, and it was funny. When I read the book by Sherry Waddell, Making Intentional Disciples, is that what it's called? Yeah, Forming, forming Intentional Disciples. Forming Intentional Disciples. She, I remember at one point she talks about he whom shall not be named or something along those lines that we as Catholics often even have a hard time calling him out by name, Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. We think of that as more, you know, non-denominational kind of Christians. And that's unfortunate. I think it's a lot of it is it's about intimacy. I remember being when I was a younger Catholic, I would use the title Christ. And I always point out the Catholics that Christ is not Jesus's last name. He wasn't raised by Joseph and Mary Christ. Um, it's a title. It means anointed one. 
And when I was younger, it was so much easier to just call him Christ because that's a title and there put some distance between the person and myself. I was comfortable with that. When I, whenever I mentioned the name Jesus, I would almost blush because that seemed way too intimate. And I, I think that's part of our culture, not our tradition, but part of our culture within Catholic parishes that we, we sort of don't use the name of Jesus. We use code words for that. Like, and we'll either use the title or we'll say, we want to pass on the faith. Exactly. Yeah, that's very true. And it's funny because um, because I am a person who has had a, a profound conversion in my life and he is the center of everything for me. And I'm very comfortable saying things like, praise God. I, I often take people aback because of that. And it's mm-hmm. it's funny because it is, I think, again, uh, a sign that our culture is not all that comfortable with that kind of intimate or I don't know, how, how, what's the other word you would use for personal. that? I, I would use the word personal. Personal, right? exactly. I, I think... I, I think the thing that needs to be said is, our, you know, our parishes are filled with really amazing, wonderful, generous people who may not yet be disciples of Jesus Christ. And it's not because they're deficient in something. It's not because there's something wrong with them. But as a whole, we have not done a very good job as pastoral leaders in even proposing that possibility in modeling what that looks like in walking with people into relationship and then accompanying them as they mature in that relationship. But that's just not something that we have done well. And that's the fruit or the lack of fruit that we're seeing sort of nowadays. Yeah, absolutely. Well, in this first chapter, you list the three fundamental questions we should ask ourselves about parish transformation. Can you kind of go through those questions? Yeah, so I think the the first one is so important. It's do we have the courage to take a different and perhaps radical approach to living out our common baptismal vocation as communities of faith? In other words, do we have the courage to live as parishes differently. Because the the truth is culture, the larger culture has changed all around us and parish life is essentially life that's working out of a post-Reformation 16th century kind of model. And even in the United States, if we updated that a little bit, it's sort of an early 20th century model of parish living. But the culture has shifted so radically around us that we really have to respond because parishes exist for the sake of the surrounding community. Exactly. Yeah. How can we best do that? So do we have the courage to change? That's the, mm-hmm. the first. The second is, are we ready mm-hmm. to change? Not only It's not only about activities, but it's about our hearts and our identities. In other words, you know, for, for Catholics to see themselves as sons and daughters of God and also missionary children, you know, Sherry has this wonderful phrase in Forming Intentional Disciples, God has no grandchildren. In other words, the, the gospel message has to be proclaimed in every generation exactly. and to every yep. So are, are we ready to really look at that, that it's, it's no, being Catholic can no longer simply be about I'm coming to receive something and then I go back into my life and then I come back to receive something, but rather I am carrying what I have received into the world, right. this Jesus into the world. So that's the second one. And the third one this is really a tough one. Are we really ready to take an honest look at our communal models, right? In other words, are we ready to dig down, not only on the theoretical level, are we ready to change, but on a practical level, are we ready to do the things that require our attention so that we can change? And and that's at the heart of it is embracing these, these kind of paradigms that I talk about in the book, which are just our ways of looking at the world and looking at ourselves and then aligning our activities with those things. Yes. And you and I both know, 
having worked in corporate America and also now in parishes, the word change often causes a lot of fear in people. It does. I'm I'm reminded of that cartoon where I think it actually takes place in a, a church where the pastor says, you know, who wants change? And everybody raises their hand. And then the next panel, he says, okay, who wants to change? And nobody's hands are raised. Exactly. Right? That's, that's the reality. And I, I know when I start talking about changing culture and changing paradigms, Catholics get nervous. And so I, I make it really clear, you know, before I was ordained, I had to make a promise of obedience to the ordinary, to the archbishop. Yep. And I had to make a profession of faith. And I take those very seriously, not only because those were written by a canon lawyer and there's no wiggle room, but also because I want to have integrity. Like, this is who God has called me to be. I'm a, I, I'm a deacon in the church, and therefore I'm only going to teach what the church teaches. I'm only going to profess what the church professes. So when we talk about change, we're not talking about changing the church's moral teachings or uh, or the church's magisterial teaching, but we're really talking about how do we apply the richness of the church's teaching, the richness of the tradition in a new way in the world. Absolutely. Thanks for clarifying that, because that is very important, because then, you know, do people do get fearful about changing the teachings, and that is not at all what you're talking about. Exactly. So that leads me into this next chapter, the second chapter, where you're focusing a lot on culture, and you emphasize the power of culture, the difficulty of changing a culture, the building blocks of culture, and my favorite part, the secret sauce of cultural change, <laughs> as outlined by Father Mallon in Divine Renovation. Can you summarize for our listeners just kind of what you're trying to get across in this chapter on culture? Yes, I think what essentially culture is like the assumptions and the values that we hold, a, a group of people holds in common that shapes how they look at the world, how they think of themselves, how they judge success or fruitfulness. And often those cultural values can be unspoken or unwritten, but that's just the way it is. Yeah. Right. So, so it, it feel this is what it means to be Catholic. So we know what feels Catholic and what doesn't feel Catholic. Now, there are real canonical and theological points that you can make that distinguish between things that are authentically Catholic and not authentically Catholic. But sometimes the power of culture, these unspoken things that we believe can obscure the actual richness of the teaching of the church. So, for example, the one of the essential teachings of the church, and it comes right out of the last four popes, but including Pope Paul VI, in his um, exhortation to the church uh, evangelization in the modern world, he talks about, he says that evangelization is the grace and vocation most proper to the church. It's her deepest identity. Yes. And so evangelization is not what we do. It's really who we are. And yet, when you talk to Catholics about evangelization, many of them feel like that sounds Protestant. Yes, I agree. So there's an example of the the teaching, the tradition saying one thing and the culture, what it feels like, these unwritten, unspoken rules saying something else. And so what we want to do, and this is what this chapter is really about, is we want to begin to change the culture so that it fosters things that are authentically Catholic in the, the deepest sense. And so that it supports our identity as missionary children of God. So, for example, then to begin to see the parish, not just as a place that you come to get something, but almost as a, I guess you could call it like a boot camp yeah. for missionaries, right? So we, what we receive, we then are called out to share. And Thomas Aquinas says this, uh, I think, very beautifully. He says, grace builds on nature. Yes. And so when we begin to change the culture of a parish, we actually allow um, the culture to help us cooperate 
with the actual grace and power of God. That's beautiful. And I love this one part that you wrote in that second chapter. I'm going to quote it. Sure. If we could create cultures that foster human receptivity, surrender to divine activity, and then you say the light of the gospel, the light of Christ would blaze forth from our gathering places and shine into the darkest areas of human existence. And that to me kind of sums it up in a nutshell, right? allowing our people to really be open and surrender to God working in their lives in a way that they cannot contain the gospel message. They have to go out and share it. It would set the world on fire. That's, and that's a beautiful piece. I mean, that, that whole uh, quote from, I think it's the gospel of Luke where Jesus says, I've come to set fire to the earth and oh, how I wish it were already ablaze. That passage was in my heart as I was writing uh, this book. And uh, and this idea that you're, you're so on fire that just pe- being in your presence sets you know, other people on fire, that's the reality. You think of the great saints, um, the great evangelists of the church, right? The, the early church. Yes. And so this is really what it is. And John Paul II would say it this way. He says evangelization is an obligation of love. So when you are moving kind of in this reality, when you are on fire, sharing Jesus is an act of love. It's not just an obligation. It's something that you do because you love other people, you love the Lord, and you want to share. And so helping our cultures and our parishes be places, uh, help our parishes be places where those things, those realities are talked about and shaped and and fostered will be so powerful. It's really the essence of, of change. Uh, you mentioned Father James Mallon, and I was at his parish doing a parish mission, uh, St. Benedict Parish in Halifax. And I said to him one day, I said, I think I discovered the secret sauce to the divine renovation model. And he asked me what it was. And I said, it's really taking the very best of human organizational principles, coupling that with a deep understanding of evangelization and discipleship, and then wedding all of that to the supernatural dimensions of life in Christ. It's those three things together. And the foundation of all of that is the supernatural dimensions of life in Christ. It's the grace of God. It's not about our human ingenuity. It's about God's grace and power through which the world will be transformed. It's his work of salvation. You know, that's what it is. And we're supposed to be cooperating with that grace. All right. Well, it is time for a break. This is Letty Medina, and you're listening to Fullness of Life on WSFI Antioch, 88.5 FM Catholic Radio. It's time for a short commercial break, but stay tuned because Deacon Keith will be sharing the five essential paradigm shifts for parish renewal when we come back. Welcome back to Fullness of Life. I'm your host, Letty Medina. If you're just tuning in, I've been talking with Deacon Keith Strom about his new book, Ablaze, Five Essential Paradigm Shifts for Parish Renewal. So let's dive right in and start talking about the first paradigm shift from institutional faith to individual faith. Deacon Keith? Sure, that first paradigm shift is is critical. Actually, they're all critical and they, they really are all essential. I like to say this, that if parish leaders and and I'm talking not just the pastor or the, um, the DRE or coordinator of religious education, but but even key volunteers and leaders of areas of ministry and parish life. If if they have not made these substantial paradigm shifts, not only will they not be able to contribute to the renewal of the parish, they will actually be an obstacle. And not because they're they're being intentionally um, 
kind of, I don't know what you would call it, like intentionally throwing up obstacles, but they're just coming out of a whole different experience. And that's what paradigms are. They're, they really are ways of looking at the world. They're ways of looking at uh, problems. They're ways of identifying uh, who you are. So they're like very, very powerful core values. And I think the first one really is this move from institutional faith to, to intentional faith or personal faith. faith. And in a, in a paradigm of institutional faith, it's not that the institution of the church is bad, but people who uh, kind of operate out of this uh, institutional paradigm, they tend to view um, relationship with God through the lens of institutional activity without considering interior disposition or personal or intimate connection. In other words, there is a kind of transactional mentality. Like I, in a paradigm of institutional faith, I relate to God by doing something institutional. Yeah. So yep. if you ask Catholics, if they go to mass, what do you think they say? I mean, if they, if you, if you ask Catholics, if they have a relationship with Christ, what do you think they say? They go to mass. Exactly. Yep. So there's this kind of transactional piece that enters into this paradigm. And when that happens, uh, people become almost consumers, right? I'm here to get the sacrament. I'm here to, yes. I'm going to pull this button. I'm going to pull this lever, push this button, and then I'll receive something. And so the challenge there is that it becomes such a consumer mentality. And, and we don't even realize we're doing it, that when a parish tries to do deeper formation or encourage people to grow in their relationship with Christ as a way of preparing for the sacrament, sometimes people view that as, in a way, that parish is charging more for the sacrament. Right, right. Right. So if someone, if an RE parent is looking at a confirmation program that requires two retreats that the parents have to be on, they might look at another church, another parish nearby where that isn't the case, where they can just right. send their child. Or it's, a, it's, getting the, it's almost getting the sacrament for cheaper. And so what we want to do is, is move from that mentality where it's about what I'm doing so that I can get whatever it is that I'm looking to get to an intentional faith where it's relationship with Christ in a personal, intimate, and deep way. That's the center of community life. That's the center of the life I should be leading. And so all of the things I do, I do as a way of growing closer to the Lord Jesus. Exactly. And I, I have to, you know, affirm everything you're saying, because so often I do see and meet people who do come to church um, because it's what they were raised doing, right? But there's not that, like you said, intimacy or that real relationship. And um, that's why they're often being pulled away by some of these uh, non-denominational churches that there's more kind of, um, you know, hyped up music and more intentionality and welcoming people. You know, they're doing a better job of that kind of stuff than the Catholics often are. And so it's very appealing to people. I, I think so. And I think the thing to understand is that, you know, it, coming out of a sense of obligation or because it's what you know or whatever that might be, that's an okay place to start. It is. Right? That's an okay place to start. But the Lord, really, the richness of, of Catholic life is about relationship, right? That Benedict XVI would say that, that the heart of Christianity isn't, it's not uh, an intellectual premise, it's an encounter with a person. And so if we can help people, we can help the parish move from a kind of institutional approach to an intentional faith approach things really begin to bear fruit. And, and in a paradigm of intentional faith, that's the focus of the staff, Yeah, right? That, that's the focus of leadership. That's the focus of people who are um, coordinating and helping with 
parish life. Yeah. And, you know, you wrote in one section of this chapter um, that the idea that the power, presence, and person of Jesus Christ could radically transform their lives, heal their brokenness, and ease their burdens isn't even an imaginative option in so many people today. And that's such a tragedy to me because they're missing, um, you know, the beauty of who Christ is in the fullness of life, which is what my radio show is all about, right? They're missing that fullness because they've, you know, haven't quite encountered that living, uh, you know, that real person of Jesus Christ in a way that is transformative. And, and in a way that they can respond to. And I think that's important. That's that's where the, the onus is on uh, on us as pastoral leaders and as people who passionately want to see our parishes changed, whether you're in leadership or not, is to help people not only have that encounter, but respond and, and say yes. Because I love, I mean, that's fullness of life. I love that, the name of the show, because that's one of my favorite passages from scripture, John chapter 10, verse 10. I, I just filmed a video invitation to a mission I'm doing in Wisconsin, I mentioned that, that Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and have it in abundance and exactly. wholeness. And that's the, that's the heart of the Father for every person, that we would live in freedom and wholeness and integrity and peace and joy. And that's what we want for every person, not just the Catholics who are in our pews, but for every single person in the world. Amen. I love it. That you are a true evangelist, my brother. <laughs> um, okay, in the very last paragraph of this second chapter, or the, I think this is your third chapter, actually, um, you mentioned the need for vulnerability. I agree, vulnerability is critical. Can you kind of touch on that and what that means? Yeah, so yeah, when we talk about vulnerability, it's really about sharing our life of faith with each other. And sometimes even pastoral leaders feel like they can't share even moments of, even in moments of crisis, right? I've, I'm, I see I'm supposed to be a leader in the community and therefore I can't kind of show anybody that I'm falling apart. Right. <laughs> or, you know, Catholics are very private in many ways. Yes. Like we have a sense that our faith might be, um, you know, it, it, it might be personal, right? But we definitely believe it's private and not to be shared, which is fundamentally not the case, right? Paul says faith comes through hearing. And so in, in order for us to shift the culture from an institutional faith to an intentional faith, we have to be willing as parishioners to break open our own life of faith, to share who Jesus is for us, to 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 share what it means to to follow him and the struggles and the difficulties and the joys that we have. And really, that has to come from every part of parish life, not just the pastor, not just the staff, although that's in incredibly important for them because they model it to let the, the rest of the community know that's okay. But, but this is, it's very important because that's how we begin to grow in union with each other and with Christ. Well, and it takes me to Acts where um, somewhere in Acts, I don't have it memorized, but it was, it's like they were of one heart and one mind, right? They came together, they they shared meals together, they shared resources, and then they went out and proclaimed the good news to others because they were so on fire for this truth. And, and open to breaking, breaking open their life, open exactly. to sharing. And I think that can be a challenge for us sometimes in, in that we come to mass, maybe we stay for coffee and donuts and then we leave and we don't always take the time in our conversations, which are often catching up with the people we know and love mm -hmm. to actually just talk a little bit about our relationship with God and where we've seen God. And, and those sorts of things are critical if we want to begin to shift this, this uh, paradigm. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, so let's move on to the the second paradigm shift, which is from engagement to encounter. 
Um, you start off by mentioning two resources that focus on engagement, and one is from Wiseman and the other, Father James Mallon. Um, anything you want to say about that topic of engagement? Yeah, I think um, the there's a book, Growing an Engaged Church, which um, Wiseman wrote, and um, Father James Mallon uses a tool that comes out of that book, which is um, a kind of a sociological survey from Gallup, which can help orient leaders, kind of give leaders a sense of where their people are, where the community is, in terms of their engagement. Now, Wiseman and Gallup use engagement in a much broader sense than we kind of mostly use colloquially, you know, in our conversations. And what I'm talking about in this chapter of, of a, a paradigm of engagement, it's not engagement in the broadest sense. Uh, what I'm focusing on is engagement in uh, the activity sense. Yeah. So getting people involved. And that's the, the challenge in this, in a paradigm of engagement. Involvement is the goal. It's sort of an end in itself. And so that's what takes up 90% of the pastoral staff uh, their time, energy, and resources is getting people involved doing things, getting people involved in the life of the community. And none of those things are bad. But the challenge is if we just focus on engagement, we can miss this fundamental reality of discipleship. And when we do that, people have conversions in our communities, but they are not converting to Jesus. They're converting to the community. Yeah. And when they convert to the community, they often convert to the community as it exists at the moment of their conversion. So if anything changes in terms of community life, if the pastor changes or the liturgical expression changes or the school closes, they're more likely to leave or disconnect because they're not necessarily rooted in Christ. They're rooted in the community. Yeah, that makes total sense. And I can see how that could be a real problem. You basically said that, you know, parishes can get trapped by this engagement mentality. Um, so, yeah, totally makes sense. And it's, it's you know, easy for me. I remember being on staff. I was the director of evangelization and faith formation for my parish for eight years. And and sometimes I'd meet new people and they seemed interested. And I was like, oh, yes, fresh meat. And then, you know, I would latch on to them and get them going in four different things. And then pretty soon, three years later, they, you know, I, I burned them out. Yeah. Yeah, totally makes and sense. It, it's not that it's not that engagement is bad, but the church's mission is not to create engaged parishioners, it's to make disciples. Exactly. And disciples are by definition engaged parishioners. Okay. And so, okay, then you you focus on the word encounter. How, how can you differentiate between the two, engagement versus encounter? Sure. I think, um, again, engagement is about activity and getting people involved in the life of the community. So it's about doing things. Uh, encounter could include engaging activities, but often the focus or foundation of those activities fosters a real heart-to-heart -heart encounter with the risen Christ. Yes. And I, so I loved your example because you gave this example um, and it was about how does your current parish registration process nurture or sustain an encounter with Jesus? And you said that often people look at you like they're, you know, crazy they're puzzled they're silent because they don't know how to respond to that yeah it's it's actually it's people often look at me like that when i talk so <laughs> I, get used to, I get used to it but i think the challenge is this to to reimagine when we moved into a culture of encounter a paradigm of encounter we reimagine everything that we do in parish life through that lens and so i had a, a friend who's the director of evangelization um in a diocese and she went undercover she went to three 
Protestant megachurches. Yes. You could say. And she basically went to each one and said, listen, I was raised Catholic. I've been Catholic my whole life, but I, I pass by your church every day. I've been on your website. I'm interested in in uh, possibly joining your church. How do I join? And she said in every case, somebody came out to meet her and spoke with her for at least 45 minutes um, to an hour. And they asked her questions. They, they got a chance to get to know her. They wanted to know what, what was she passionate about? Yep. What did she want out of life? And, and then they said, we want to help you achieve those things. Yep. And so she said that in all three of those cases, she left feeling as if Christ himself had listened to her. Wow, that's beautiful. And so Yeah, if we can kind of do that, because sometimes sometimes when we're at our best, we give people a list of things they can do, which is which is not really saying, here's what we can do for you, but here are all the ways you can help us. Yes. Right. And so again, that's that shift from engagement, getting people involved to encounter, which is fostering this intimate connection, this connective moment between God and our people. Yeah. And you, you suggest that parish staff should take an honest look at their church activities and assess, are they leading to encounter with Jesus in some way? And to me, that's just a very practical bit of advice. And yet I know that would probably be hard for many people to, you know, to hear or consider needing to make changes. I think, I think it's always going to be difficult. It's always going to be hard, especially because um, when you're working out of a, the kind of current paradigm, the paradigm of engagement, that's your focus. That's how you get evaluated. That's how you see success. Yeah. That's how you see fruitfulness. And so the, the paradigm of encounter says we got to look at, at fruit a different way. We have to, we have to, this is really about pastoral conversion and personal conversion, you know, rethinking everything, our approach to ministry, our approach to evaluating success and fruitfulness. Yeah. And that takes time for people to make the journey. And until they do, it's going to cause a little inter internal conflict. Yes, absolutely. So the last part of this chapter focuses on the use of discernment to ensure people's gifts are matched with areas of service. And I kind of remember reading about some of this in Sherry Waddell's book, Forming Intentional Disciples, how oftentimes, not often, but sometimes people are, are in the wrong role um, and their gifts don't match. Can you expand on that a bit? Yeah, sure. I mean, I would say in parish life and the parishes I've observed and I've served and as either a staff member or a parishioner or a accompanying parishes all across North America and in Europe, almost, you know, more than 100 parishes. I think people often are in the place that is a mismatch for their gifts and talents, because when you're in a culture of engagement, there's a lack of discernment. In other words, you throw bodies at problems, right? I joke. And I say, what's the discernment process for a parish ministry? Like if you're if you're on staff and you need a, an extraordinary minister of Holy Communion or a minister of care or a lector or a catechist, what do you do? You take a mirror, you hold it underneath somebody's nose, and if it fogs up, they're in. <laughs> That's, that works. Right. They're alive. Yeah. We throw bodies at problems. And in a culture of encounter, it's not about throwing bodies at problems. It's really getting to know the person, getting to know their life experience, their spiritual gifts, their talents, and then aligning the things that they do with those things. Exactly. You know? and when you do that, not only do you get fruitfulness that's both natural and supernatural because the spiritual gifts, the charisms that Paul mentions in scripture and that the church talks about we receive at baptism, it's God working through us, but they also generate joy. Yes. You know, they also, they are also fostering an encounter with God. When we use our gifts for the sake of others, we also encounter God. Absolutely. That's beautiful. Um, Let's move on to the third paradigm shift, which is yep. from maintenance to mission. 
And you begin by highlighting the difference between counting and measuring and how this relates to the parable of the, the talents, Matthew 25. Um, can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, that, I mean, I read a book called Doing the Math of Mission by a gentleman. His name is Gil Rendell. And it was a powerful book. It's, it's really written from a sociological perspective, but he talks about this difference between counting and measuring. And in other words, when we when we are in the place of counting, we are coming out of, um, uh, you could say, a paradigm of scarcity. Yeah. In other words, it's like we're constantly trying to squirrel away resources. We, we're we're trying to manage decline. And when we are in a, a, a paradigm of maintenance. It can often be like that. We want to make sure the trains run on time. We want to make sure we have enough resources. We have enough money. We have enough uh, people. Yeah. And so that becomes the focus. And uh, what we end up doing is not investing in the things that might actually grow and give life to the community because we're focusing all our resources and efforts on making sure the things that have always been done get done. And so that's kind of that counting mentality. And that's the that's the bad steward or the 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 not fruitful steward yeah. who buried, you know, the talents. And the good steward is the one who invested. Yes. So moving into measuring and measuring is really kind of living out of this paradigm of mission, using what we have and risking what we have, investing in the things that will bear fruit. Now, it doesn't mean good maintenance and good stewardship isn't important. You have to have good maintenance if you want to go on mission. Right. But coming out of uh, measuring fruit is a much different. It's it's a it's coming out of a worldview of abundance and not scarcity. Yeah. And so it often means we're willing to stop doing some of the things that aren't bearing fruit to focus on the things that are and then reinvesting our energy, our resources, our time into those things that are about releasing the power of the kingdom into the world, not keeping people in the pews. Yes. Yeah, that's really good. Um I loved, I, I laughed out loud, I have to say, with the example of the maintenance mindset that you provided. Um, share the story about the seminary and the parish secretary you encountered. Yeah, this um, this story also makes me laugh. The, we, actually, I had a pastor who was very involved, wanted missionary discipleship, wanted to change the culture in the parish. And he told me a story when he was a seminarian. He went to one of the uh, he went he went around to many of the developments that were springing up because people were moving into the area new housing was being built and he was dropping off information about the parish um to the offices the sales offices of those places so that when people came they would say oh we also have you know this is part of our community yeah and then people would check out the parish and at one point he grabbed more information from the parish office and the parish secretary stopped him and said what are you doing and he explained what he was doing and she yelled at him and said stop doing that we have enough people. We don't want anymore. <laughs> that is hilarious. And I can understand how that is clearly that maintenance mindset. You know, we're barely surviving with the number of people we have. We can't do anything beyond that. And I think even when we want to go on mission, because I think most Catholics would say we need to grow. We're, you know, we're getting older as a population in terms of who's coming to church. And, you know, we want to do that. But the thing is, we're so stuck in maintenance that we can't imagine. We we say things like we can't do that because we don't have enough resources. Exactly. Yeah. And and all of this that you've just described takes tremendous courage, which goes back to what we were talking about earlier, right? It takes courage. And trust in the Lord, right? Amen. And and that's the thing. If there is not a culture of discipleship, if discipleship isn't the norm, right, then the level of trust in a sense, uh, based out of personal encounter and personal experience. 
right? As a, you know, in terms of members of the community, that's at a lower level. Yes. And so everyone's a lot more hesitant. Exactly. Okay. Well, that pulls us to um, another break. So this is Letty Medina on WSFI 88.5 FM Catholic Radio, host of Fullness of Life. We pause once again to take a short break, but stick around so you can hear about the final two paradigm shifts that need to occur for parish renewal. Thanks. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Fullness of Life. I'm your host, Levy Medina, and if you're just tuning in, I've been talking with my good friend, Deacon Keith Strom, about his book, Ablaze, Five Essential Paradigm Shifts for Parish Renewal. So we've already gone through the first three paradigm shifts. Um, let's go ahead and jump into the fourth shift, which is from programs to people. Can you share your shoe factor analogy? Sure. It's actually a, an analogy I got from Father Michael uh, Schmidt in He's a priest in Minnesota. He's a wonderful priest. And uh, he was talking to some young people, but he was talking about evangelization. And he said that, you know, the church is like a shoe factory. Uh, the purpose of a shoe factory is to produce shoes. And it doesn't matter that the shoe factory has the best equipment and the best employees and the best raw materials and the best campus. If the factory isn't producing shoes, there's a problem in the factory. And he said, this is an analogy. Obviously, the church isn't a factory, but the church has a mission. And that mission is to produce, to make disciples. And it doesn't matter that we have perfect theology and it doesn't matter that we have the fullness of truth. And it doesn't matter that, that you know, the apostolic succession and the magisterial teaching and authority of the church are, are present in the Catholic church. If we are not making disciples, there's a problem in the church, not in her being, but in the way we as human persons are living out the reality of being Catholic disciples of Jesus Christ. And so we want to kind of repair or bring into alignment the things that are out of alignment within our parish life so that we can produce disciples. And the challenge that we have is I was in the corporate world for a number of years. And if I had a factory that was not producing what it was supposed to produce, I'd bring in somebody to turn that factory around. But honestly, if it's a shoe factory, that person would have to have deep knowledge of the shoemaking process or right. access to people who do so that they could figure out how best to align the machinery and the workflow and how best to evaluate quality and how best to train employees. And so the challenge we have with the crisis of discipleship is also a crisis in leadership right. as we have many leaders who are not yet disciples of Jesus Christ, really wonderful giving leaders. And you can't understand evangelization from the outside. In other words, if if we've never walked into relationship with somebody else or helped somebody walk into relationship with Christ, if we've never matured them as a disciple, if we've never equipped them as a missionary disciple, how do we expect that we're going to be able to shift the culture in our parishes along these lines? And so we really need to find men and women who have this experience and um, have them share that experience. Yeah with others. And so when we're in this paradigm of programs, we're not really thinking that way. We're thinking about just discrete events that are good and that have good content and that people will find helpful in some way. But we're not really thinking about how are we using all of those things to produce disciples. And that's the 
the, the movement from programs to people, because the truth is programs don't make disciples, people make disciples. Yes, it totally makes sense. And again, going back to the Acts of the Apostles, right? That's that's what they they showed us in the, the way they lived out that mission from the very beginning, that they went from town to town and they built relationships with these people and they shared the good news. And those people then became disciples because their hearts were converted and they understood the need to share this amazing, life-giving, transforming news with everybody. And it's it's not that programs are bad. Uh, in fact, we have incredible programs, but when we're in this paradigm of programs, we kind of throw them in a disconnected way up against the wall. Like we'll do Great Adventure Bible Study in the fall, and then we'll do Oremus by, I think it's Ascension Press in the spring, and then we'll do Bishop Barron's Catholicism series over the summer. And these are all good things, but they tend to be disconnected. And we're not asking where people are before they start the event in their spiritual journey. We're not following up after the event and asking them where they are. And so we we miss out on the opportunity to connect yeah. the programs that we do in a kind of pathway that can help people move from, I don't really know much about Jesus or his church to being a missionary discipleship, a missionary disciple. Yeah, no, it, it totally makes sense to me. But part of it is because I have that, you know, that experience myself. I've lived it out. And so you're talking to someone who already, you know, kind of has has been converted to the need for this way of doing things. But I do see that it is often something that others just don't really get that. Um, but that's why we're talking about it on the show, right? So more people. And and again, it's it's not that they don't get it because there's something wrong with them. It's just that we have never as leadership or not often provided that experience. For exactly. Them. No, that's really so it's important. Just, it's just outside their realm of, of, of experience. And so that's one of the shifts uh, that we need to make in order to yeah. change the culture. And you, you point out in one part of this chapter that um, just to remind people, you know, pastors or, uh, you know, managers of, of parishes that are hiring, not to overlook the need to ask questions of the candidates. What is your lived relationship with Jesus? What is your experience in leading others to discipleship, right? I think those are critical questions to ask. The, the reality is, I, I call it the Nemo principle, because everybody likes finding Nemo, so they remember yeah. it. But it's a, a Latin phrase, Nemo dot quod non habet, which just means no one can give what they do not have. And so oh, I love that. Yep. It, it, it works out to be the kind of what I tell people is only a disciple can make a disciple. Right. And so that's kind of necessary when you think about the role of a catechist, the role of a Catholic school teacher, right? The role of a parent. And so how do we help our people become disciples, right? Well, we have to disciple them. And how do we do that? We have to bring in disciples or raise up disciples or hire yes. disciples uh, in our parish structures so that men and women can have this experience of being accompanied into relationship with Christ and then trained on how to do it themselves. Exactly. And so, I mean, that's what your apostolate, M3 Ministries, is all about, right? It's about helping parishes to build disciples. So can you share a little bit about some of the criteria that you seek to find in men and women for discipleship? Sure. I mean, I think that, and that's the thing. When I talk about M3 Ministries, people always think of 3M, right? And I think, and I think of tape. Uh, <laughs> so when I I chose M3 Ministries because it's about making, maturing, and demissioning disciples of Jesus Christ, those three critical M's. 
And so when I work with a parish or a diocese, we want to raise up men and women, first of all, who are open. You know, there's a spiritual journey towards discipleship. And Sherry Waddell really highlights this in her book, Forming Intentional Disciples, that there are these pre-discipleship thresholds. And so we, what we want to do is we want to help people recognize where other people are in those thresholds, recognize where they are in those thresholds, and then do what it takes, invest in them so that they can, through the grace of God, move through those thresholds into, like crossing those thresholds into discipleship. And so when I'm forming people to form others, to disciple others, I want to begin with disciples. I want to begin with men and women who have already made a commitment to Jesus. Yeah. If they, if they haven't made that commitment to Jesus, it's hard to make them, uh, equip them to be missionary. And so if they're not there yet, then we start with where they are and we help move them through the grace of God into exactly. discipleship. I love that. Um, okay, so let's move on to the fifth and final paradigm shift from avoidance to accountability. So you start out by sharing the example from Father Mallon about growth of children. Um, can you kind of share that example and how it relates to the organizational health of a parish? Yeah, I mean, I think Father Mallon's point there is, is that you don't have to work very hard to help children biologically grow, right? You have to feed them, you have to provide a healthy environment, right. and then it happens. And I think that's his, his major point is that in a healthy environment, things grow. Right. And so when you are in a paradigm of avoidance, you are not actually adding or, or supporting or nurturing a healthy environment, you're actually supporting a more of a toxic environment. And so that what in a paradigm of avoidance, you don't have difficult conversations with people about performance or about fruitfulness or about attitude or about a number of things, boundaries, because you don't want to hurt their feelings. You, you know, we, we, we raise up this kind of passive aggressiveness inside the church to an art form because we don't want to kind of hurt people. Right. Therefore, we don't say anything. And all that does is lead to more toxicity. I, well, I think uh, as I was preparing and writing this book, there was one quote that I read that basically said, when you really embrace a culture of avoidance, you trade like long, you, you trade short-term discomfort for long-term yeah. dysfunction. So you avoid, you avoid discomfort in the short term, but now you're just creating more of it and more toxicity in the future. And so we, sometimes we don't even do the things we should do in a culture of avoidance, like strategically, we're not going to move in a direction because it might mean having a difficult conversation or difficult consequences. And so we just don't do it. And that doesn't promote a healthy environment. What we really need is a, an environment that uh, is about accountability, where you have difficult conversations with people because you love them. Even if they're difficult, you love them and you want what's best for them. And so you help them confront issues. They help you confront issues. And together, that builds trust. That builds a kind of healthy conflict. And that really erases passive aggressiveness and the 800-pound gorilla that sits in the room that nobody talks about, but is affecting everybody. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, I've seen this kind of avoidance both in corporate America and in the parish life. And it is hard. It's hard to have some of these challenging, uh, sensitive discussions that are going to make people feel a little bit defensive. But if you approach it in love and with the real aim of helping that person 
to be in a role that is more suitable to them or to recognize how their behaviors are being disruptive and that you're trying to help them to grow, um, you know, then it really can be achieved um, and, and it can make all the difference in the world. I think what helps is, is if you are rooted in a relationship with Jesus and your people around you are as well, that's the, that's the heart of communion, right? Yep. I, I like to say that without Jesus, communion becomes tribalism, right? And without Jesus, um, fraternal correction becomes just criticism. Exactly. Wow. That's, that's beautiful. Wow. This hour has flown by and we, we've only gone through two parts of the three parts of your book, but I'm hoping that that means that, um, we can get our listeners to consider purchasing your book so they can themselves read that third part, which is very worthwhile. Um, in the third part of his book, he talks about topics like wrapping our arms around change, aligning with vision and values, taking the first steps of, you know, things like pastoral planning and the power for change. And, and beyond those topics, he even has four or three appendices, uh, including six disciplines of discipleship, seven qualities of fruitful pastoral leaders, and a cultural snapshot inventory. So it's really a, a wealth of information that you've put into this book. I'm really excited about it as a resource for parish leadership, people who are interested in trying to help their parish leadership to consider uh, making changes in the culture of their parish. Um, how, how would our listeners get a hold of your book, Keith? I think there's a, a couple of very simple ways. One would be um, go to a Catholic bookstore. Uh, if you have a Catholic bookstore near you, certainly go there. I always like to support brick and mortar stores, but also um, the Word Among Us Press, which is the publisher, it's available from their website and it's also available from amazon.com and barnesandnoble.com. Okay, very good. Um, in this final minute, I kind of want to just mention, you know, Deacon Keith, he's not paying me to say this, but he is <laughs> truly an inspirational speaker. He, you can tell, I think, after listening to him over this hour that he is a true evangelist with a heart for mission, a heart for the gospel, a heart for our dear Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm so excited because he's coming to lead our parish mission next March uh, at St. Gilbert's in Grace Lake. So you might want to come and join us in that, that time. If you want to learn more about Deacon Keith's work, go to his website, m3catholic.com, because he really can provide resources and even come out and meet with you guys. So please consider it because he really is. He's a wealth of knowledge and has a lot of expertise to offer. Any final words, Keith? Only that... My hope and my prayer is that parishes all across our diocese, all across the country, all across the world, just really begin to lean into this kind of change and transformation, kind of open their hearts to the Lord and the Holy Spirit, and really have a boldness to set forth on this journey because God wants his parishes to be renewed because he wants the gospel to be released into the world. And so we have to align ourselves with his will and his power. And that's my prayer for all of the listeners and all of the parishes uh, really in the world. Thank you. That's beautiful. And that's exactly why I'm on the radio now talking about fullness of life, right? Because I want to be a part of trying to help set the world on fire with the amazing uh, beauty of our Lord and his church and yeah, draw everyone and anyone who would care to join us uh, to be part of that mission.
So thank you everyone for joining us today. Thank you, Deacon Keith, for spending this hour with us. Um, we hope you'll remember to listen to us at 88.5 FM on your radio dial or online at wsfiradio.org. This is Letty Medina, host of WSFI's Fullness of Life. And until we meet again, I'm wishing you all his fullness of life. Bye.